is Leah, and welcome to this week's Hashtag For Paris podcast. It is wonderful that you could join us for this week's teaching. I'll explain a little bit more about who we are at the end, but for now, let's jump right in. All right, well, good morning. I'm Ryan. If you've uh, regularly been part of this online community, you might have no idea who I am, but I'm a part of uh, Paris Community Church. And uh, I used to be a pastor and a church planter for about 10 years, and uh, so I'm looking forward to opening up the Bible with you this morning. We're going to be talking a little bit about how a church community can really get to know its neighborhood and the people who live around. So for those of us at Paris Community Church, that looks like the town of Paris and Brant County and the areas surrounding. Um, but uh, I'm looking forward to, to you exploring how to connect with your community, whatever that might be. Something I did a lot as a church planter, and so I'm looking forward to looking into uh, the book of Acts with you, Acts 17 today, as we explore where this idea comes from and how one person in the Bible approached getting to know a community they wanted to reach. But first, I just want you to think about a cringeworthy moment you had once. Think about one of those embarrassing moments when you just thought, what was I doing? What I, why did I say that? All right, well, my turn. This summer, my family and I had the incredible opportunity to travel to London, England. We flew through the night and uh, landed in London early in the morning and arranged a taxi ride to get us to the home of a friend where we were going to be staying. Now, of course, I knew, being in a different country, things were going to be different, but it certainly didn't take long to figure it out. As we all got into the taxi, Kristen, my wife, and the kids were in the back and me in the front, and the cabbie handed me the keys. I said, what are these for? And he said, well, you're getting in the driver's side. You must want to drive. <sighs> right. We're not in Canada anymore, and I can't do the things I'm used to doing at home. Well, we spent the next few days figuring out everything else that was going to be different. The electrical outlets, the grocery brands, the signage, words like blue, lorry, and even some that don't start with L. We toured the city of London on a double-decker bus, seeing all those things that are important to the British. Their monuments, the palaces, the parks, and more. And you'd think that, you know, an English-speaking country with so much shared history and culture wouldn't be such a culture shock to us, but there was still so much to learn, just to navigate life there and begin to fit into their way of life. Well, this is really similar to what happened in the book of Acts in the Bible to Paul, a traveling evangelist and church planter about 2,000 years ago, going from city to city, sharing the good news of Jesus and starting new churches as he went. And he usually started with the Jewish population. This was his comfort zone and his own culture. The Jews already believed in one God, and many already know that God was going to send a Messiah or anointed one to come and save them from oppression. So all Paul really needed to do was connect the dots, tell them about Jesus and that he's the Messiah that God sent, the one they've been looking for. You see, they already know 80% of Paul's message. They know some of the backstories, the ideas, the idea of there being one God in the first place. And Paul just kind of needs to introduce Jesus to top it all off. Some of his fellow Jews, when he does that, would respond with excitement, devote their lives to Jesus. Others, not so much. They'd run him out of town, jail him, or try to kill him. It's not a pretty routine, but it worked. But to be honest, I'm hoping that's not how this ends. See, Paul has a routine for reaching familiar audiences in familiar towns. But he's not in those towns and with those people any longer. He's in Athens now, and Athens is different. Sure, there are some Jews there, like him, and he spends a little time in the synagogue meeting them, but that's not the real Athens. The real Athens he needs to reach is the center of Greek philosophy and culture, 
and to reach the powerful, influential, educated, non-Jewish people there, he needs to know them like he knows his own people. We're going to see four ways he does that today. The first thing is he cares enough to listen. Like my double-decker bus tour, Paul tours the town, taking note of its landmarks and its culture. This is how the story starts. In Acts 17, verse 16, it says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Unlike the Jews with their one god, they believe in many gods and goddesses, each with idols, these little statues that people would worship, and altars where they'd sacrifice their hard-won earnings to that god or goddess. And there are just so many as he tours the city, one for every possible need that people could have. And it just breaks his heart. He feels the weight of this. He's distressed by it. Their lives must just be consumed by trying to please these many gods and goddesses, sacrificing to them, praying to them, with nothing to show for it. So, out of compassion and love, he tries speaking to them about Jesus. But unfortunately, it doesn't go well. Verse 18 says that a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with them. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So why didn't things go better here? This sounds okay to us, right? Preaching good news about Jesus and the resurrection? But we can forget sometimes just how much we already know about this story. If you're listening today, I can imagine you have some idea already of what that story means, what those words mean, Jesus and the resurrection. Either because you're a regular part of this online community or because you know enough about church life that you've decided to try it out, or you've just seen and heard enough about Christian faith in media and culture around you to just know the basics. You might have a vague idea of who Jesus is that he died on a cross, that his resurrection was the moment he rose again from the dead, paving the way for all of us to have hope that death isn't the end of us either. But Greeks, living just a few years after all that had happened in another part of the Mediterranean, with their many altars, their gods and goddesses, they hear that all very differently. They don't automatically hearken back to a story they've heard before. They've never heard the story at all. And speaking in Greek... When Paul showed up preaching about Yesu and Anastasis, the Greek words for Jesus and resurrection, they figured he must be preaching about a new god and goddess, Jesus and his wife, Anastasia. So they call him a babbler. And they say he must be advocating for foreign gods. This is making no sense. He says there's one god and then he talks to us about Yesu and Anastasis. Doesn't make sense. I kind of know how he's feeling, holding the cabbie's keys, feeling completely out of his depth in a new place. Thankfully, they're interested enough, these Greeks, to try and figure out this nonsense, this babbling. As it says in verse 19, Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we'd like to know what they mean. And that brings us to our, our second lesson from Paul, which is that he cares enough to try and try again. Now, when I messed up the whole UK car thing with the steering wheel on the wrong side, I guess I could have just given up and gone home. My family probably would have been annoyed, but I suppose we could have. But thankfully, I tried again. Kept the trip going. Because a few days later, 
I took the train to the next town and rented a car so we could visit uh, some smaller towns and most important of all, a medieval castle. When the rental car, or I guess I should say car hire guy, was done checking things over and went back inside, was ready to go. I opened the door, flopped down with my backpack on my lap, which is exactly where the steering wheel was supposed to be. I'd done it again. This time I'm supposed to be the driver and I'm sitting in the passenger seat. And last time I was the passenger sitting in the driver's seat. So quickly tried pulling some things out of the bag, plugging in my phone, making it all look so cool, like I totally meant to do this, and finally got out and switched sides. I'm sure the car guys were at their desk laughing and settling up their bets about which side the goofy Canadian was going to get into. So I drove away, slowly getting used to driving on the wrong side. It was worth it, though, even at the risk of embarrassing myself. And Paul thought it was worth it, too, to try and try again. Especially after his mistakes, you might expect him to just go back to the synagogues, find some Jews, he knows them, he speaks their language, they know 90% of his story already. He just needs to tell them about Jesus. But thankfully, he tries again with the Greeks. Because now he has an invitation to speak at the Areopagus, the place in Athens to share new ideas and gain an audience. Kind of like London's famed Speaker's Corner. He now has an opportunity and a stage to speak to all who've gathered there to hear the latest. He doesn't make them come back to the synagogue with them. He shows up in their space, on their terms, and earns an invitation to speak. Well, next, he cares to speak their language. Now that he's got this opportunity to speak to them, even after all his mistakes, you might think he'd go back to just some familiar old messages and words. But instead, he takes all he's learned in Athens by walking around, talking to people, making mistakes and embarrassing himself, and he uses it all to change their lives by changing his words. Verse 22 begins that Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So, you're ignorant of the very thing you worship? and This is what I'm going to proclaim to you. He's found it. He's found his connection point. See, it turns out they weren't completely starting at zero. God has been working in their lives all along, preparing them for the gospel. Even with all their gods and goddesses, what he's discovered is that even though they each have an altar somewhere in Athens, the Greeks had figured out that something was still missing. So they built an altar to an unknown god, you know, just in case they missed one. Obviously, there were some parts of their lives that even these dozens and dozens of gods and goddesses couldn't help. They didn't know what to call this missing piece, so they called him the unknown god. Paul knows who this is. He's not unknown. He's the one that, one God who created the universe and made himself known to us by coming to earth as Jesus. He says in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inherit the whole earth he marked out their appointed times in history and their boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he's not far from any of us. 
For in him we live and move and have our being. And as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now, did you catch that last bit? He's not just figured out their obsession with gods and goddesses from walking around. He's been reading their books. He's been listening to their favorite sayings. He directly quotes one of the poets here, but there are other people he's quoting left and right throughout this passage. He's speaking their language. He's been reading all this material and getting to know it, not just to judge them as all pagan errors, but he was learning and thinking about how their own poets were expressing their deepest longings for a true God at the center of their lives, a God who'd be their good father and they his offspring. He says in verse 29 to all these gathered people, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. See, now he's connecting the dots. They're different from the ones he connects for the Jews. These ones are custom for the people of Athens in that year. Using their words after his words confuse them. Using their poets, their deepest longings that dozens of gods and goddesses still couldn't fill. This message, this savior is beginning to transform their lives. But to be honest, it's a lot to absorb in one day for these Greeks. Which is why he cares to build relationships. Maybe you think the story is going to end with thousands of people being baptized on the spot or something. That's more something that happened with the Jews who knew 90% of this story already and Jesus made sense of it all. The Greeks, on the other hand, they have further to go. 90% of this is new and they'll need more time, more patience, more opportunities to see the gospel in action and see if Paul really lives what he preaches. So in verse 32, it says in the Bible, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, I want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Now, just someone saying, we want to hear you again, is an awfully good sign when you're talking about dramatic and unusual things like people coming back from the dead or God walking around on earth. You might think this stuff is normal if you grew up a Christian or around Christian culture and church, but it's so not normal for anyone else in the world. So he earns the right to speak again, to spend time with these people, and over time to influence important people worth naming in the Bible even, who've become Christians, who then in turn can begin to make new Christians through their own teaching and influence. And it's all because he took the time and cared enough to build relationships with people, not just to drop something on them one time. So what does this have to do for us today, 2,000 years later, living in our communities? Well, maybe sometimes you walk around your community and feel like it's some kind of a new country. It's been a lot of change over several years in many of our communities. Paris is one of them. I remember one Sunday driving to church, going past and seeing lines and lines of people at Housing Development Sales Center trying to move here to this wonderful community. And I can see the houses they're building to accommodate all those people all along Rest Acres Road as I drive. And one of the values of this church is that we care. And we're here, as they like to say, hashtag for Paris. And as someone who lives just outside Paris, I like to think that's 
not limited to Paris, but just where we start. The things that we learn here as part of this church community, the things we sing and pray, they don't mean a lot if we don't live them out outside the doors of the church or in our actual neighborhoods in a way that changes the lives of those around us. But like Paul, we just can't assume they're just like us. At one point in history, I'm sure Paris was mostly made up of Christians and Christian culture who at least knew 90% of the gospel. And being a church just meant we could top off already Christian-inspired lives with the truth of Jesus. Certain events, activities, and stories might have really resonated in those times, but things are different today. I consulted once with a church that told me they had amazing classical music concerts, and they, they were just perplexed why none of their neighbors ever came to it and why it wasn't working at growing their church. So we took some time to look at who lived in the area and what we found was mostly military families and this was during the Afghanistan war. Good news for a young parent struggling to make things work while their spouse is away on deployment? Doesn't really look like a classical music concert, beautiful as that can be. So, how do we do this as a church, as Christians living in a community? How do we know how to connect with people, how to care? Well, in the same way that Paul cared in four different ways, we can learn to care in four different ways, starting with caring to listen. Like Paul figured out the Athenians were motivated by their gods and goddesses with their altars all over town, we can spend some time listening to the world around us to try to understand the people we're called to love and serve, to learn what people are passionate about and what they're worried about to learn how a church that cares about people could truly help and make a difference. See, if we just start speaking about everything we know about the Bible, it might not impress people, but drive them away. Got to stop and listen first to know what stories are going to connect and what needs the gospel can meet first. We can spend time learning about our community and its needs by asking lots of good questions, by just being observant and assuming that it really matters to God and then matters to this church. Secondly, we can care to try and try again. We can try some things to help and serve people in our community where we might get opportunities to share the good news in our actions and words, but it's hard to know what that is. Just because you put on a classical music concert in a neighborhood full of toddlers doesn't mean you can't try again. So I think as a church, we should try some things that can help us connect with our neighbors. I know some people are trying out a neighborhood barbecue soon. And when we do try those things, Let's just have an attitude of experimentation. It doesn't have to work the first time. But we can try some things and agree up front what a good outcome can be and try enough times to know for sure. Third, we can care to speak others' language. We, we probably won't get far quoting Greek poets like Paul did, but we too can be students of the culture around us. Not because everything out there is good and wholesome, but because we can find out what people's deepest longings are when we look at art and culture. If we're a church that talks in code words that Paris's new residents don't know, we'll end up embarrassing ourselves just like when Paul introduced Jesus and his goddess wife, Anastasia. If we listen and learn to speak others' language, we might just hear them saying, we'll hear you again on this. Finally, we care enough to build some lasting relationships with people. You're not Billy Graham, neither am I. Neither of us is likely to fill a stadium with people proclaiming they're ready to become a Christian on the spot. And you know what, if this does happen today, chances are the stadium was filled with people who already knew 80, 90% of the gospel. True life change for people in Paris and our communities today 
looks a lot more like it did for the Greeks than it did for the Jews. People who live in our communities today are unlikely to have a, an extensive Christian background that they can draw on where they already know the stories, they already know the words, they already know the basic ideas, and we just need to remind them of that or add a little bit more. Instead, they're more likely to be people from all around the world, all different faiths and backgrounds, who need to know a lot more about this story, to need to see us live it out in our lives. So their life change is more likely to come from them knowing some followers of Jesus, who know them, who care about them, who serve them, who love them like nobody else for the long term, not just people who gave them something once or spoke to them once. And so building relationship means inviting others to be part of your story, part of your life, saying yes to being part of their lives, saying yes to every invitation you get, and being patient with other people's hearts because they take a long time to change. Now, I know this sounds like a lot. How do you do all that? How do you listen? How do you try things and try again? How do you speak others' language? How do you build lasting relationships with people? Well, we're going to help you. Over the next few weeks, we're going to give you a challenge each week to get to know your community a little bit better, to get to know your neighbors. Now, I know this sounds scary, but we'll be nice. We're going to help you learn bit by bit how to do that. You might make some embarrassing mistakes here and there, yes, but it's all worth it because you might just hear someone, after you've shown them love and care and built a relationship, listened, learned, spoken their language, you might just hear them saying, we will hear you again on this. And so to kick off that set of challenges, First week, we're going easy on you. This passage that we just talked about, Acts 17, I'm going to encourage you to read it somewhere, somewhere public. Go to a coffee shop. Spend some time reading Acts 17, and then spend some time looking around and listening. In Acts 17, Paul saw what people were worshiping, what was at the center of their lives, what they were focused on. And so, after you've taken a look around and read Acts 17, Think about what are people here focused on? What are they worshiping? What's at the center of their lives? What's the most important thing for them? And that's just step one in getting to know who people are, what their needs are, and where this good news of the gospel is going to truly lead to life change so that when you speak, they'll be able to answer, we want to hear you again on this. Amen. today. We hope that you were encouraged by what you just heard. Just so you know a little bit more about who we are, hashtag for Paris, our church is about creating a culture that shows people that we are for them and for our local community. Jesus invites us to experience a meaningful life with him and others. So we meet every Sunday morning in person at the Paris Presbyterian Church at 1030 a.m. and throughout the week in various home groups and pubs here in Paris. It is here that we experience authentic relationships and we grow deep in our faith journeys together. If you would like to connect with us further, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And it is here that you can find links to any of our other audio and video podcasts, sermons, and you can track with what's happening with us each month. 
Please go straight to our website for more information now about our home groups and how you can get involved. Our website is parispresb.ca. Yes, that's right, parispresb, P-R-E-S-B dot C-A. And it's there that you can share our links with your friends, family, and neighbors. Uh, We have friends from around the world who connect in with us online on a regular basis. And so lastly, please feel free to email me and get connected directly. I would love to chat with you. My email is leah at parispres.ca, and I'll get right back to you. So that's all we have for now. Thanks again for joining, and we'll see you again next week. Bye for now, everyone.